Hello, everyone. This is Lynn Cremando for Yoga U Online. Today, I am so pleased to be here with Lila Schwartz, who is the author of Healing Our Backs with Yoga, An Essential Guide to Back Pain Relief. Lila has been practicing yoga since discovering Iyengar Yoga in 1979, and she was blessed to be studying with the master, Mr. Iyengar himself, as well as some other really great teachers. She'd been teaching since 1981 and held an Iyengar teaching certificate for 23 years before branching off on her own. In addition to yoga, Lila brings a strong background in movement, anatomy, physiology, and all in the sciences into her work in the studio. So her book merges those scientific pieces with, of course, the philosophy and the lovely, gooey yumminess of uh, yoga. Lila opened the first full-service yoga studio in Asheville, North Carolina, and ran it from 1981 to 2013, when she stepped away to create other projects. Uh, but she still teaches group classes today, works with clients. Uh, she uh, runs lots of teacher trainings and retreats. And she's also produced a couple of therapeutic DVDs for people with structural pain, such as shoulder pain and back pain. So welcome, Lilla. So glad that you're here with us. Good, good afternoon and pleasure to be here. Thank you. You've certainly been working on this for many years, but it's nice to see yoga being recognized as a healing modality by Western medicine in some of the evidence-based material that's starting to emerge. In, indeed it is. You know, just recently there was a, a study, 2017, by Boston Medical Hospital, and what they did was study 320 uh, racially diverse, low-income population, all who had chronic back pain. And they did a really broad study with yoga, physical therapy, and other modalities. What they discovered at the end of the year, that those who did yoga or physical therapy had a 20% reduction in the use of pain medication. So at the beginning of the study, 70% of the people were taking pain medications. And at the end, only 50% were taking pain medication. And that's something that you and I know about the practice of yoga. When you do yoga, it works. And it's a management situation. So you have to be consistent with the practice. So it was a great study because it took place over a year. I really appreciated that. Yeah, and I think more of these studies are emerging. I know that in 2005, there was also an NIH study uh, on back pain. And that was maybe the first really scientifically toothy study, but what's really nice is that the American College of Physicians is now recommending yoga as a modality for treatment of back pain. And it's really wonderful. I'm glad to see the evolution of yoga in our culture. So we've just touched a little bit on your book that it is an amalgam of your sort of your science background and your yoga background, both very strong. Uh, and you've worked with hundreds of people helping them conquer back pain, but I'm suspecting that there's a little bit of a personal backstory here mm -hmm. that perhaps nudged you in that direction of therapeutic yoga. Would I be correct in that? You would definitely be correct in that. <laughs> would you mind telling us a little bit about your evolution? Sure. Uh, it all started uh, 
I love horses and I love yoga. And it all started falling down, going down with a horse where I severely busted my tailbone. And it set up a whole asymmetric pelvis bit um, that not only gave me lower back pain, but SI joint pain, knee pain, shoulder pain. And then there was a mild scoliosis in my neck, which contributed to the neck pain. So there's been a very intimate relationship that I have with working with um, structural misalignments and how to harmonize them so that we come to a place of great functioning. And I'm probably a testimony of my own work, you know, no hip replacements, no knees, no, you know, mm -hmm, like that. So you were your first client. I was my best client. <laughs> and my, my busted tailbone was my best teacher ever. <laughs> Not your favorite teacher, probably, but your best teacher. It was my best teacher. And I, you know, it took time to, um, a certain, certain level of maturity has to come where you recognize that this is the structure I have. And if I perform my yoga this way, I can be really strong and pain-free, but I have to be careful not to do it that way. So it's, it is a good teacher, and it, is, um, it gives me a breadth of experience to share with other people. So you've worked with a, quite a few different uh, structural issues in your clients. Are, are there some main themes? Like, What are some of the things that, would you say, contribute mostly to back pain, or what do you see most often? Well, there's two questions there. What kind of clients am I teaching and what kind of um, conditions do they have? And then what's the best way to approach it? So it's sort of a double question. Um, I, I work with all kinds of people with back trouble. You know, the weightlifting man who has three herniated discs because they're too muscle bound and contracted and they need to learn to stretch out and lengthen their spine and keep a certain amount of range of motion and flexibility. Um, often women will um, have weakness in the pelvic floor or weakness in the gluteal muscles somehow that keeps them unstable in their pelvis and so the lower back has to compensate for the instability of the pelvis. Um, I've worked with um, scoliosis. I work a lot with scoliosis. Um, I've worked with spondylolisthesis. I've worked some with stenosis. Stenosis is the hardest one um, because the bones are, there's calcium being laid down and additional bone being laid down. And you can't make that disappear, but you can give some relief and you can give some um, preparation for the body, if you will, if, in case a person is going to have surgery, mm -hmm. you can give some preparation that makes them their surgery more successful. What would you say makes yoga uh, a really good viable option for this kind of pain? I love this question because the beauty of yoga is that it connects one part of the body to another. So you can discover in your practice, not only is your big toe mound connected to your inner groin, but it's also connected to the origin of the psoas muscle. So your legs start where the psoas muscle starts, which is at T12, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you expand your arms and really work the arm area, then your arms connect to where the legs connect at the beginning of the psoas muscle. 
So it's, it's the beauty of how yoga can, especially alignment yoga, when you understand alignment, mm-hmm. can lead us to those connections in our body so that the fluidity can be brought back in to how we move through our life. Mm-hmm. So I, I, we often say this in my tradition that we deal with the person and not the condition. And it sounds like what you're saying is you're looking at a whole body. You're not just looking at a lower back. Right, right. You know, if someone doesn't know their body and how it works, then you have to start with baby steps because Mm -hmm. then what you have is you have a puppy. The body is a puppy that's not trained. Once you can, so you have to start with the basic alignment, basic connections, how to use the breath, um, how to do a simple sequence of poses that is anatomically balanced. Uh, And then once you can train in in the fundamentals, then you can lead people Mm -hmm. to the broader, bigger connections. So, you know, students who come to my classes, if I start a, a six or eight week back care class, um, they'll come in, maybe I get a range of people anywhere from a, on a scale of one to 10 being as objective as possible, mm-hmm. you know, one being no pain, 10 calling 911. Mm-hmm. So if we do an objective, uh, you know, you have people with a two, three, if somebody tells me they've got a five or a six, I start paying more attention. If they've got a seven, I really pay close attention because when someone has a joint dysfunction, because the dysfunction in the joints is a very small space. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny space. It doesn't take much to affect it, right? And if somebody has a, a, a strong dysfunction, if their alignment is off just by a little bit, they can get that negative pinch or that bite or increase the inflammation on that herniation rather than relieve it and allow the inflammation to start to recede. So we start with really basic things. You build gradually, but over six weeks, most people will get down from a four or five or six to a two or a three. Mm-hmm. Um, if they need more special attention than that because they're not progressing in class, then I see them one-on-one privately so that, so that their mind can start wrapping around how to live in their body, how to listen to their body, how to be their own best friend. That's my favorite statement, how to be your own best friend by knowing the map of this beautiful body that we have. You know, in your, uh, on your website, there's a really lovely page where you pl- pay tribute to all your teachers. Mm. And I think that is just very eloquent. And one of the things that you said about Mr. Iyengar that really struck me And it's reminding me, what you're talking about right now reminds me of it. So I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about it. But it it was that he compelled you to practice, investigate, and observe the result of each action, developing subtle insights and connections of body to mind and mind to soul. That piece of investigate and observe the results of each action, it seems like a very important component in what you're talking about right now? Well, it it is. And I think the challenge as a yoga teacher and as a teacher trainer, training other teachers to 
have a, a good skill set. Um, the challenge is how do you language the pose when you teach it? And do you give your students enough time after the pose to observe what's changed? It, it really is that um, sense of action and reflection. Action and reflection. I think that's probably, you know, and then it's practice. And it's practice and, and listening and learning to listen to the body mm -hmm. as an intelligent organism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the second part of that statement had to do with sort of the mind-body connection. Mm-hmm. When you're working with structural pain, can you talk a little bit about the importance really of that mind-body connection? Well, again, in the beginning, you have to keep it really simple. And the simplest thing is that if you're breathing, if you're focusing on your breath, <laughs> and it's a long, smooth inhalation and a long, smooth exhalation, then the mind is captured by the breath. So the mind connects to the breath, the breath connects to the body, and then the body communicates back to the mind through the breath. So it all has to do with breath. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. The magic ingredient. Yeah. Okay. We're going to move from lovely to the slightly controversial. Oh, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> because you use the word alignment a lot, and Iyengar mm -hmm. is a, the alignment yoga. I've been seeing a lot of controversial or, or uh, provocative uh, chatter on the various internet places. Mm. And they have to do with uh, the idea that alignment can be this rigid uh, structural thing that is external. So I'd like you to talk about what you mean by alignment. Do you know what I'm saying about? I do. The, I do. The, what you're speaking controversy. What you're speaking about is rigidity of mind. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of people who teach Iyengar yoga mm -hmm. who suffer from rigidity of mind. And, you know, part of my studies, part of my studies, um, I, <laughs> I had a close encounter with Mr. Iyengar one time, which really propelled me forward. It was, I taught at a, a conference and um, he came by one morning. I had a group, I had a one class on my own and I had worked hard to prepare and I was pretty much the green teacher in the crowd. And, um, I had 35 people in the room. There were five back conditions, three knee surgeries, a shoulder injury, and a man with cerebral palsy. And I had never worked with a man with cerebral palsy before. So I did what I saw my teacher do. I put his back against the wall. I put a chair up in front of him, and I turned around, and I taught the class I was teaching. Now, I felt pretty confident that I had worked hard on that class and that the way I was going to teach it, that no one was going to get hurt, and they were going to experience something about the connection of yoga and the mind and the breath and et cetera, right? And Guruji, known affectionately, walked by with his entourage and he chewed me out because I wasn't helping the guy with cerebral palsy. And, you know, without make, making a long story really short, I was challenged in that moment and I said, gosh darn it, 
never is Iyengar ever going to walk into one of my classes when I cannot look at him and say, yes, I am helping these people in a brilliant way and they're improving because of their yoga experience. So I went on and I spent 10 years studying with Eric Small who had MS. Mm. And I learned all about how to pay attention to other subtleties that a lot of people who do the straight Iyengar formula don't get those mm. because they don't allow themselves to feel that each joint can move four directions minimally. And if it's your spine and it can rotate, then it's more than four directions, right? So that's where my injuries and my pain served me really well because I had to figure out what are the subtle movements? How can I change this alignment? So the rule of thumb is this, alignment's important, go with the lines whenever possible, deviate from those lines only in those cases when the deviation creates a greater connection to the whole. It's a really deep question that you've asked me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Takes me months to get this across to teachers and teacher training. It's a really deep question. So there must be flexibility. There must be adaptability in the alignment. So just because you can see someone goes up like this and they're really trying hard to get their arms up and their elbows are bent, but they've got scoliosis. As soon as I do that, I'm locking up the muscles on my back body mm -hmm. and it's just going to clamp down on those facet joints and generate pain. So I say to them, lower the arms, wrap, open the elbows, feel the line, lift the back ribs and feel yourself create length in your spine. If you can't do it in this position, do it in this position. So there has to be adaptability where the pieces can connect. I'm just going to leave it at that. It does sound as you're speaking though, that when there is the adaptability and the pieces connect, that there's a real somatic uh, sort of integrity to uh, the individual's alignment so that each person's integrated alignment may be a little different, but it's authentic. Right. There's finding that authenticity. And sensation, when you say soma, it's like the sense of sensation. What are the sensations that you're having? So when I teach, I'm interested in the fluidity of structure mm -hmm. and what can help create that fluidity. So if a person has really destroyed their lower back and they've got herniations for whatever reason, um, they don't have fluidity in their hips and they may not have fluidity in their shoulders. So, you know, you have to start with the base and slowly help them create that fluidity, that flexibility. But at the same time, muscle structures can also be weaker. The fascia, the muscle structures can have a weakness in them. For instance, you and I sitting at our desk right now, all the time and I spent writing my book, sitting. People who sit a lot, 
people at Yoga U who sit and make these wonderful videos for everyone. That's a liability. Sitting mm -hmm. too much is a liability because there's a weakness that comes into the lower back. So, you know, there's different poses that you need to do on a consistent basis to counterbalance what your life experience is. So that's another flexibility about how to sequence poses together. Also sounds like you've got to factor in compensation patterns because uh, yes. if yes. I've been sitting all day, I probably am compensating and transferring some of my psoas work, uh, subcontracting it out. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, so to keep it simple, to keep the study simple, mm -hmm. um, if we just look at muscle structure, mm -hmm. we know that there's something called reciprocal inhibition, right? And what that means, simple, plain and simple, if I contract one muscle group, automatically the muscles on the other side are going to relax. So if somebody's having back spasm, lay them on the ground, teach them a couple little tummy curls that don't irritate their back, the ones that don't irritate, the one that they can do, mm -hmm. teach them what they can do, and let them curl a little bit, and five minutes later, their back pain's gone because the spasms are gone. So reciprocal inhibition can be relied upon as a tool for the practitioner and for the yoga teacher. I have a, a short story. Can I tell you a short story? Absolutely. Okay, I had a short story. I had this fellow come to me one time. He was brilliant in Greek history and philosophy and taught at Omega. He was a big name, right? And he came in and he had this pain in his neck. And he was so um, um, so crisp in his consciousness, so vast in his consciousness that I felt like I was in a snowstorm with what the information he was giving me. I felt like I was in a snowstorm. And I'm trying to find the way in to help him get rid of his pain, to help relieve, get some relief. And so finally, I got him lying on his back just to press the back of his head into the floor and let go. Press it into the floor and let go. Press it into the floor and let go. And the, it released the tightness in the front of his neck just enough for the pain to disappear. And I went, that's it. Okay, if God sent me a sign, he sent me this person, never again will I doubt that reciprocal inhibition <laughs> always works. Okay, and it's pretty simple because you can just look at the muscle structure. You don't have to be, and, and that will lead you, that would lead a student that would lead the teacher in their practice gradually to those deeper connections. But you can start with something so simple and employ it to help somebody else. And I think that's really important. That's really beautiful. Now you have a very strong science background. In your teacher trainees, and even we're talking at, on, on a website right now where people are meeting you for the first time, but how important is it for a yoga teacher to have a grounding in anatomy, physiology, kinesiology? How important are those things in a teaching practice? You know, I do believe that um, some of the physical sciences are important. Mm -hmm. 
but I also know that there's a diversity in yoga that I wouldn't want to diminish. So um, it's like silver sneakers yoga, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 so it's it's such. Forgive me. It's a little bit like pablum. It's just like so simple. You can't even have a person put their head down below their hips. And that's like, oh God, I'd never want to teach that. But that's for the insurance companies mm-hmm. because they don't know who has high blood pressure, what their eyes are doing, blah, blah, blah. So it's for the insurance companies. So, but in a general yoga class, I, I do think it's important for people to have a basic understanding of anatomy. I think if they if they uh, if they have a good training program and they have a regular practice, some of the other pieces will come in. But I think a, a baseline of understanding anatomy is really important. Um, as far as physiology goes, when I do a new pose and the muscle cramps, why did it cramp? It cramps because it's weak. It's either stiff and cold or stiff, cold, and weak. So you have to sometimes you have to warm the body up a little bit, just like uh, uh, it's a, it's an athletic endeavor in some sensing because you are living in a physical body, mm-hmm. right? So easy things to warm up using the breath, easy things to warm before more challenging poses. But then understanding where the anatomy comes in is that you can understand how to counterbalance a sequence, so that at the end of the sequence we're supposed to be neutral. We're supposed to go into Shavasana in a neutral state so that we can really relax the body-mind. And it helps. It just helps a lot. I know that you have developed a course for Yoga You Online, and it's based on this material uh, called Yoga for Healthy Backs. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And it's a three-part course. Can you tell us a little bit about it and who it might be good for? I'd love to do that, sure. Um, It's Yoga for Back Pain, part one, and it's for the relief of discomfort, back pain. So the first um, PowerPoint presentation, there's an hour-long PowerPoint presentation that I share some information about the anatomy, physiology, alignment, how to work with pain, um, positive pain, negative pain, how to tell the difference, uh, to help people get started in a good, solid yoga practice to manage their back condition. So I think it's excellent for practitioners um, as well as as, uh, yoga teachers Mm -hmm. to help them understand some of the ways to approach yoga and apply yoga for the management of back pain. Yeah, it sounds like the uh, really useful will be those sequences that you developed. Yes, and the sequences um, are progressive. So there's four 30-minute sequences, um, and each one of them progresses from fundamentally what to do to get relief, how to start building range of motion in your body, and then how to start building strength. So they can be repeated or a person can switch from one to the other anytime um, they find the need to do that to help them on their journey. Well, Lila, it sounds really useful. I'm excited to see it. And I want to really thank you for sharing your wisdom today with us, the Yogi You Online family. And for the Yogi You Online family, I want to thank you for joining us 
And we will see you again very soon here on Yoga You Online. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Namaste.